Good morning, church. Let's go to John 15. We'll start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. We are finishing a chapter this morning. So it's Jesus speaking to the disciples, to the eleven in the upper room. And he says this, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that uh, the promises of God are yes and amen in you, Christ. Uh, these are some promises we're not real comfortable with. We pray that uh, the spirit of truth that you have sent to us would explain these things to our hearts. God, I pray that we, as your church, would resemble you uh, in every way, even those ways that have consequences within this life. Lead us unto all truth. Be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so a bit of review here in John 15. Uh, John 15 is just a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful chapter. And the, the, the real message, the, the point of John 15, if you just wanted one, uh, was this, this truth of abiding in Christ, of unity with Christ, union with God, fellowship with Jesus. And, and it starts off with this, you know, really cool metaphor of the vine and the branches. Jesus saying, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Um, we, we saw the encouragement from Jesus, you know, be united with Christ. He says, um, abide in me. And then later in the chapter, he says, abide in my love. And then he, he says, even as, you know, I and the Father are one. He describes the unity of the Son and the Father as a model for the unity that we can have with Jesus. Like, that's the extent, uh, this extreme measure of unity. And we saw that the, the way the disciples are, um, are able to be united with Christ is through obedience. Now, they were worried, of course, uh, back in chapter 14 and before, you know, Jesus had said that he's leaving and they couldn't come with him. They couldn't follow him. And so, they're, they're concerned that they're going to be alone. They say, why can't we come? Uh, Peter says, I'm definitely going to go wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Um, but Jesus said, I'm going and you can't follow. But then he, he tells them this good news. He says, you can be with me even after I leave. And we can have... Um, a unity with each other even after I'm gone. You can abide in me. You can abide in my love. You can make your home where I am. And, and he explains the, the way that you do this is through obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's John 15, 10. 
Jesus invited the disciples and you to have fellowship with Jesus, not just through prayer and meditation and the spiritual disciplines and the contemplative life and those, those things, but, but through doing his work with him, not as servants, but as friends. You know, Jesus says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends, meaning I'm not just sitting in an office and telling you to go out and, and work harder. I'm working on a project with you. We're handling the same materials here. We're working towards the same goals. I'm telling you what I'm doing. And he says, if you, if you do that work, then you'll have fellowship with me. And the work, very clearly spelled out for us, is love. In verse 17, which leads us right into our passage, it says, These things I command you, that you love one another. He said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. The command is that you love one another. So, he's described this unity um, that's available for Christians with their God. But now we move into this passage, and we see that union with God has consequences. Uh, abiding in Christ has some very serious consequences. And the, the main one here is enmity with the world. Now, you're familiar with the James passage, I'm sure. You know, we studied James a little over a year ago. But it's a, it's a well-known part in James where, where he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we see kind of the reverse, the mirror image of that in this passage. Friendship with the world, that's not something you want. That's making God your enemy. And here, when Jesus says, I call you my friends, he said that earlier in chapter 15. I call you friends, not servants, and you can abide in my love. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Verse 14, now, friendship with the Lord is enmity with the world. He says, if you're going to be my friend like this and abide in my love and be with me, well, don't be surprised when the world treats you the same way that it treated me. Jesus has already said, you cannot serve two masters. He was referring to, to money there. He says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. Um, and it's a similar principle here. You know, if you, we were to follow the vine and branches metaphor down the line, you'd say, you can't have two root systems. You can't have, you, you can't be in this garden and that garden at the same time. And that which affects the vine also affects the branches. The world hated Jesus. That's the vine. And so if, if you're going to be the same as him, if you're going to be united with him, then you're going to be part of that hated entity as well. You will be hated too. Now I want to look at this word, um, or this concept of the world. Uh, we've, we've talked about this in John 3, of course, for God so loved the world. And you probably know this, but it's worth being reminded that when Jesus is speaking of the world here, think of it in terms of worldliness. Okay, worldliness. You've heard that described as, as it's kind of a, a selfish attitude, um, being concerned with, um, you know, money and fame and, and all the things that don't last, right? This worldliness. Um, it, it's spoken, uh, the worldliness, it, when it's mentioned in scripture, is never said as a good thing. Okay, this is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's worldliness. So when Jesus talks about the world, he's talking about that culture, that world system that seeks its own, okay, that is filled with pride, 
that's filled with lust, that is antithetical to the extreme sacrifice that Jesus has modeled and commanded his disciples to walk in. So when we mention that the world hates you, we're not talking about the third rock from the sun, we're not talking about the blue planet, not saying, you know, you're going to go on a walk and then a branch like slaps you in the face and you're going to say, well, the world hated me because it hated Jesus first. Okay, this isn't, this isn't talking about bee stings. Um, different principle. What we're talking about is the world system that, again, is antithetical to God. And the world, in that sense, has existed not since creation, but since the fall. That's the world we're talking about. Um, after the fall, Adam and Eve, they set themselves up as supreme authority. Um, and man has done the same ever since. We want to be number one. We make for ourselves gods and we challenge anyone who would uh, threaten our autonomy. That's the worldliness that hates Jesus and will hate those who resemble him. We know also from 1 John that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. The world system that I just described is under satanic influence. Okay, um, But then, maybe most importantly, what you have to realize when you see this word world, which is in a negative sense here, is that this is the same world that is so dearly loved. For God so loved this world. And... You know, you, you could say, yes, he loved, the, he loved the whole world, and even creation, you know, groans for redemption. And he, he does love everything that he's made in that sense. But Jesus died for sinners. The great physician didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And it is this world system seeking its own under satanic influence that Christ died for. And here he says, that world that I've come to that's going to kill me, well, it's... It hates me, but it's going to hate you too. And when it does, be sure you know that it's only doing this because it hated me first. You're not that special. Now the word you there, I'm going to read verse 18 through 20 again so you get this picture in your mind. But it says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word which I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Um, now, I had the privilege of taking Greek from uh, uh, someone from the south. And so, for when you is plural, that's y'all. Okay? It's y'all. And every time the word you is is used in this passage, it's you plural. It's not talking to an individual. He's talking to all 11 disciples. It's y'all. If the world hates y'all, you know that it hated me before it hated y'all. Okay, I can't talk like that. That is just so not my culture. Anyway, but the, the you there is plural, and I want you to take this to heart, because when you, you talk about the promises of God, and that's what this passage is, you have to see that the promises of God, even the hard ones, are to the church collectively and not only to isolated individuals. Okay? The, the, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. The promises of God are to the people, plural, of God who are in Christ. The world doesn't hate you as an individual. You're not that important. 
um, you don't you don't get a flatter yourself and think that you're you know public enemy number one for for Satan. You're not. No, the world hates the church's God. That's what the world system hates, and it will hate those who resemble Christ. The world, this system that is under the sway of the the wicked one, hates the church, and it hates Christ, the head of the church. Now, just as you do not receive the blessings of God apart from Christ, neither do you experience godly persecution apart from Christ. Think of this in collective terms. I mean, think, think of... Well, first, think of what Paul says. I mean, Paul, as an individual, suffered persecution. Of course he did. And he mentioned it several times. And he did so as a way of uh, teaching and even encouraging the church churches that would be facing similar persecution. But he did not say that he was suffering for his righteousness. He called those the marks of Christ. He says, I bear in my flesh the marks of Christ. He says, I'm, I am, um, you know, uh, oh, what's, what's the passage? It just slipped out of my mind. Um, which says, you, you fill up the measure of Christ's sufferings. He saw his sufferings as something that was, well, fellowship. And that's exactly what he calls them, the fellowship of suffering. And, and so we, Jesus telling the disciples, you are going to be hated, you are going to be persecuted, saying you collectively, that extends to the church as a whole, you will be persecuted. Now this makes sense a little bit because... There are those, of course, who have been, become Christians and not suffered persecution for it. Deathbed conversions are, you know, if not frequent, they're at least somewhat common. And that person doesn't even have time to suffer for Christ. Okay? But if, when you see this in collective terms and you see the church that you belong to is the persecuted church this passage will begin to make a little bit more sense. Now, the disciples took this very seriously. All 11 were, uh, were murdered, except for John, though they tried really hard. Uh, persecution defined uh, entire generations of the church, early and recent. Now, I'll read from a, a commentary here. It says, The earliest Christians would know the hatred of the world. Tacitus spoke of the people hated for their crimes, whom the mob call Christians. So this, there were mobs hating Christians for supposed crimes. Suetonius had spoken of a race of men who belong to a new and evil superstition. Uh, the earliest references to Christians in pagan literature charges them with hatred of the human race. Yikes. That's in, from Tacitus. Uh, and of course, this isn't just for the early church. Christians through the centuries have known the hatred of the world, and millions upon millions have died for their faith in Christ. It's said that more Christians died as martyrs for Jesus in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Your church is a persecuted church. And, and you see that... Um, you know, the, the church that you belong to, of course, is this 2,000-year-old this institution that is built on the solid rock of Christ. And, and when you see that you collectively will be hated, persecuted, um, hopefully this does, that does two things. Hopefully this at least um, gives you an identity, a closeness with your persecuted brothers. Um, 
And then also, it should give you uh, a humility of sorts when it comes to any persecution that you may face along the way. Now, a question needs to be asked. Are, are you persecuted? Are we persecuted? I mean, okay, so it's, it's February something 2021. The world is a crazy place. Is the church in the United States persecuted? Well, y yes and no. I mean, yes, in the fact that the church will always be hated as we resemble Christ. When we are in Christ, doing the things Christ does and saying the things Christ says, we will have enemies. We are the church. And even if we are not imprisoned, Hebrews says, remember those who are, are in prison as if chained with them. Uh, so we are told to identify with the persecuted. However, as, as you read, you know, the, the works... Um, of persecuted Christians and histories about persecuted Christians, you will realize that very likely, and I don't want to minimize real persecution if you have suffered it, but it's very likely that none of you have ever been persecuted. Not in the sense that we read of in Fox's Book of Martyrs or even Voice of the Martyrs. I'd, I'd recommend you um, both of those works. One's a magazine, one's a book. But, but subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs magazine, their newsletter. It's free. Do yourself a favor and learn about the historical church and learn about the persecuted church. Um, not as a separate entity, like, oh, we pray for the persecuted church. No, this is your church. Pray for your church. The church. Learn about um, you know, the, the atrocities that Christians have suffered through in the 20th century under totalitarian regimes. Learn about the persecution of the early church under, under Roman persecution. And again, this will benefit you in those two ways I mentioned. You will develop a closeness with your persecuted brothers and sisters, and that is good, and that is healthy. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, well, I don't think it was Paul, says, remember those as if chained with them. And then, uh, again, in seeing the suffering that Christians have endured throughout the centuries in a variety of times and places and contexts, you should have a humility and a gratefulness for the freedom that you do have. Now, there, there is a tendency in, um, in the U.S. specifically, probably, to, to overstate any current plight. I think probably because we realize that we are the exception to the rule. Uh, the rule has been that the church is persecuted. That's just the way it's always been. And we are an exception to that. And so when there is any sort of pressure or um, you know, legislation that may not be friendly to, to the church, we want there's a tendency to exaggerate the opposition we meet from culture and government. Perspective is needed. And you know, we, we, have to, we have to gain perspective by looking at the global church to see what the church has endured and then be with them, be one with them. And then we need to see how, the, see how, not just what the church has endured, but we need to study and see how the church has endured so we can be prepared when it's our turn. And now the answer to that question, how has the church endured persecution? Um, strangely, that's the answer uh, in the most weird way. This has got to be the weirdest thing about Christians. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, I'm going to read you a passage here from Acts chapter 5 verse 40. I'll read, um, um, 
Yeah, uh, verse 41 and 42. It says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is after uh, the disciples, after their initial trial, not their first. They're brought before the court of, a court of law and beaten and said, You may not speak about Jesus anymore. And so they depart from the presence presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's how the church suffers the persecution that Jesus promises to his disciples in John 15. Now, James chapter 1 uh, the other strange thing about Christians, right? We're called to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Now, you may or may not have faced anything resembling persecution in your life. Statistically rare. It's statistically rare where we are in the U.S. during our lifetimes. But over the course of his the history of the church, persecution of various degrees is normal. Um... You know, what What should our attitude be then in, in expecting this? Because you see that this, this is the normal thing. If you don't suffer persecution here where you are, um, you should probably prepare your grandchildren to, um, your children and grandchildren, because that, that's just the normal thing. We shouldn't become complacent just because we're in a weird part of history where we're not receiving the promise that Jesus has given his disciples and us in John 15. So how do we prepare? How should we, what should the attitude be facing persecution? Take joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The disciples, they're beaten. They're, they're, they lose their court case and they rejoice. Okay, that's a verb. That's like they, they actually expressed happiness. It wasn't just saying like, well, I'm going to count it all joy and bear my cross. You know, they, they didn't have, these are, these are martyrs, witnesses, that don't have the, the martyr attitude of woe is me, poor me, poor little church, always the underdog. They don't have that attitude. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Now, why would they do that? Why are we to count it all joy? Because it means fellowship with Jesus. Do we, need, we need to review this again, probably. The disciples are tro troubled because Jesus is leaving. He says, abide through obedience. Union has consequences. But even those consequences are in God's control. The one who is suffering for Christ is near to Christ. He is near to the brokenhearted, close to the contrite in spirit. Paul speaks about the fellowship of his suffering. That's a real thing. The context of John 15, the, the message of John 15 is abiding. It's closeness with Christ. Those who have suffered for him know of a closeness that is special for them. You see kind of, kind of a picture of this in the book of Revelation. You know, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of, uh, of horrible persecutions that happen um, to the church. And it, it speaks of those who had been beheaded for, the, for, for Christ, for the Lamb. And in heaven, these, these saints, the uh, sometimes called the tribulation saints, they enjoy a closeness with Jesus that other saints and angels do not. They're always with him. 
forever and ever and ever and ever. They have a closeness. The beheaded ones have a special closeness to Jesus in heaven. The attitude of the persecuted should be joy, because the way of the cross is the way of Jesus. Now, I will say again that I don't believe, though people can disagree about this because it's, it's a hard thing to quantify, I don't believe that I've, I've ever been persecuted. I don't believe that our church in the United States at this point is persecuted. That's, that's not the way I see it. Okay, we may be losing our hold on a variety of things, control and, and uh, government, and, and, the, and certainly we've lost it in the arts a long time ago. Um, and there's, there's things like that that people talk about, and I don't, I don't want to get into that a whole lot. But I don't believe that we are persecuted. But if you feel differently, and you are entitled to that opinion, if you see that you as a Christian, and that we as the church in the West, in the United States, are suffering severe persecution from the government or wherever, if that is what you believe, then you ought to be the most joyful Christian at church. That's what you should be. You should be the most joyful Christian that anyone's ever met. Because as you come out of the courtroom, having lost your court case, having been beaten and commanded, don't be a Christian, you should be coming out of there rejoicing that you are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, and that's not easy. That's something that we need supernatural help with, which we'll get to verse 26. But unfortunately, the attitude with those who believe that, um, that the church in the West may be suffering persecution is, is generally somewhat defeatist and negative, uh, where their, their words are, are more a mourning for what has been lost, a little bit of Ecclesiastes wishing for good old days when things were better and everyone was good. If we're suffering persecution, we better be the happiest people that, that people others have ever met. And, and the attitude is also a, a real, um, well, to use a biblical word, a fretfulness. Yes, that's in the Bible. Fretting for evildoers. Now, doesn't the Bible say, do not fret because of evildoers? It does. That's exactly what the Bible says. Now, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you will be hated, but it's because they hated me first. You're going to be hated. The, the world, if, if you were of the world, they'd love you, but you're not, so they're going to hate you. And, and then he, he moves into this, um, the, the subject of responsibility, and he talks about the world. Now, it's interesting that he's talking about them so much to the disciples who are going to suffer at their hands, but remember, the world is what Jesus loves. He died for the world. And in verse 21, he says, But all these things they do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the world, the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. And Jesus there, um, quotes from uh, from Psalm 35, uh, verse 19, uh, and also it shows up in Psalm 69, 
verse 4 there, they hated me without cause. Now what Jesus says is people are responsible for what they've been given. And that's a, that's a principle that we're familiar with. Uh, Jesus talks about um, Bethsaida and Chorazin, these cities that he did miracles in. He says it's better for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. And it's not because the sins... Uh, you know, were, were more disgusting one place or the other, or looked worse, it's because Bethsaida and Chorazin had seen the Son of God do miracles and didn't respond. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have that revelation. So the amount of revelation you're given, uh, you know, has an effect on what you'll, you'll be, have to answer for. And we know, um, um, sorry, the, the Romans uh, that crucified Jesus there, you know, Jesus prays for these crowds. He says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. And it's this idea of Jesus wanting forgiveness for those in, in ignorance. But again, what led to Christ's persecution? He says right here, he says, they, they're responsible because I told them. I told them the truth and they denied it. So they're responsible for that. But they hated me because they hated my father. And now it says very clear here in verse 22, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now when it says they have no sin, it's not saying that they would be sinless. Ignorance is not the same as sinlessness. It's talking about this specific sin um, of, well, the sin they're about to commit is crucifying Jesus. And they're doing so knowing they, they had heard who he is and what he had done. And then in verse 24, it says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. Saying they're responsible for rejecting the things I've said and the things that I've done. They would be responsible for other sins that they did. They had the law. The law condemned each one. But now they had even more revelation and more, more, um, more uh, option, uh, a wider door to walk through towards forgiveness, and they rejected it. But the thing that they hated Jesus for, the things that they hated Jesus for, was that Jesus said things about God and from God, verse 22, and that he did things for God, in verse 24. These are the things that led to Christ's persecution. These are also the things that Christians should be persecuted for when persecution comes. I would say be sure that you are doing his works and saying his words. Now we know that Jesus was persecuted without cause, right? Verse 25, they hated me without a cause. Jesus was perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. There was no justice in his trial or his, his crucifixion. So be sure that if persecution comes, the same can be said of you. Be sure that the same thing can be said of you, that they, they persecute you, that they harm you without cause. Now Peter talks about this in a Oh, let's see. Um, yeah, First Peter 4, verse 14. It says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this manner. And then Peter picks it up again, because uh, Peter knew a thing or two about being persecuted. Uh, and also, he knew a thing or two about just making mistakes and having consequences. And he knew the difference. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, 
you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's our model for suffering. Christ is always going to be our model for everything, including suffering. What will the church be persecuted for? Resembling the world's true enemy. That's what. When we resemble the world's true enemy, the conquering King Jesus Christ, then we will have his same enemies and they'll treat us the same way they treated him. How do we face this? With joy? Which leads to another question. How in the world do we do that? Well, there's good news. There's help on the way. Verse 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we, we can see the promise of this played out in the book of Acts. They do testify of Christ. And you know what happens? They get thrown in jail, and they get beaten, and they get persecuted. That's what happens. That's what the Spirit comes to, to help them with. Now, that there's a, more to come on the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. We're going to get into that shortly in the coming weeks. But notice the Holy Spirit, who is called the Helper or the Comforter in some passages, will lead the disciples into the very situations that result in persecution, testifying of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, who is their comfort, who brings them comfort, will lead them, yes, into all truth, but it's the truth that's going to get them into trouble. Now, G.K. Chesterton always has a nice way of saying things. He says, um, and don't take this too seriously, uh, this isn't scripture, but uh, Jesus promises to his disciples, um, oh, where is it? Here we go. Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. That's kind of what he's getting to in the Upper Room Discourse. They're going to be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Do not fret because of evildoers. He says, don't, don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. I've already won. And, and don't be afraid because you're going to have the Holy Spirit there leading you into all this trouble. You're going to have the Holy Spirit leading you into the persecution that is fellowship with me. That's what you're going to do. So how, how do we look at this? How do we look at all these things? Like victims? No. No, the scripture says we are more than conquerors in Christ. But we are, and we need to be, sufferers. I would say even that we are called to be sufferers. The Psalms are full of lament. There's a whole book about lament. Lamentations. Jesus is, is, is the one who, who sweats great drops of blood. He weeps. The, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We are called to suffer. We are called to the fellowship of his sufferings. But let's get better at knowing that friendship with God will mean enmity with the world. Let's face that with joy, knowing that there is a closeness with Christ that is waiting for us in those trials, in the company of Christ. And he has sent his Holy Spirit, not to get you out of trouble, to actually
actually get you into more trouble. But he's going to be with you. The whole point of chapter 15 to review is Christ saying, there is a way for me to have unbroken fellowship with you, my friends. And this is what it looks like. Friendship with God looks like this kind of enmity with the world. Let us move forward in this direction, counting it all joy. Jesus, lead your church in these truths. Only you can. Holy Spirit, be our comforter and our help and our guide, because we will be completely lost without you. Lord, constantly be reminding, of, reminding us of your goodness and your greatness and filling us with an appetite to be with you so that we can see the truth that, that all of these small-time persecutions, even the things that, that Paul suffered, are not even worthy to be mentioned next to your exceeding glory. We look forward to glory, God, and we patiently await your return. Let us be faithful until then, in Jesus' name. Amen.